0: Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallott. It's hard to measure water from a fire hose when it's hitting you in the face. In a sense, that's the challenge of analyzing streaming data, which comes at us in a torrent and never lets up. And it's a challenge scientists are taking a crack at with the help of algorithms. If you're on Twitter, the tweets never stop scrolling down your screen. To figure out what's trending, you might have to take a break from watching tweets go by. But the information's always streaming in, so you can't hit pause. Instead, you need to find a way to tally hashtags on the fly. Computer programs that perform these kinds of on-the-go calculations are called streaming algorithms. Harvard computer scientist Jelani Nelson explains.
1: The idea of streaming algorithms is that you, for various reasons, want an algorithm that uses very little memory to process the stream on the fly as it's coming in. So in particular, the algorithm should use sublinear memory, much less memory than what would be required to actually remember everything it saw.
0: That means recording the essence of the data that's coming in and strategically forgetting the rest. Nelson says a streaming algorithm may suggest a movie on a site like Netflix or what you should buy next on Amazon or even help keep spam out of your inbox.
1: With emails, you can think of emails as just documents with text. And what you would do is you would turn the email into A very high dimensional vector where the dimension of the vector is the size of say the english dictionary and it's basically a a word count vector so for every single word in the dictionary there's a dimension and the number that you put in a specific dimension is the count of that word in the email or how many times does that word appear in the email so if you have an email that has the 10 times then in the the position of the vector you would put a 10 and whatever other words you would put, you know, the count there. So you have this very high dimensional vector. It's going to be very sparse because most words in the dictionary are not in that sort of email. So it's a very sparse vector, but it's a very high dimensional vector. Now you have lots and lots of emails. Each one of them gives rise to a very high dimensional vector. And you now feed all these high dimensional vectors into some algorithm, some, let's say, machine learning algorithm that tries to learn how to classify spam versus not spam.
0: For more than 30 years, computer scientists have worked to build a better streaming algorithm. Last fall, a team of researchers invented one that is just about perfect. Nelson helped develop the new algorithm, which he calls simultaneously the best on every performance dimension. This streaming algorithm works by remembering just enough of what it's seen to tell you what it's seen most often, It suggests that compromises that seem intrinsic to the analysis of streaming data are not actually necessary. It also points the way forward to a new era of strategic forgetting. Streaming algorithms are helpful in any situation where you're monitoring a database that's being updated continuously. This could be AT&T keeping tabs on data packets, Google charting the never-ending flow of search queries, or Twitter telling you what's trending. In these situations, you need to have a method for answering real-time questions about the data without re-examining or even remembering every piece of data you've ever seen. Nelson points to a simple example.
1: Suppose that you're monitoring a stream of numbers coming in, and people want to query the sum of all the numbers you've seen so far. So at any point they can say query, and then you have to output the sum of everything you saw so far. So clearly there, you do not need to remember every single number you saw to be able to answer what the sum was because you can just keep a running sum in your memory and that's the only single number you're keeping in memory, right? If someone asks you what was the fifth number you saw today, you won't be able to answer that but you can still answer the the sum query.
0: This particular puzzle is known as the frequent items or heavy hitters problem. David Grease of Cornell University and Jayadev Misra of the University of Texas, Austin, developed the first algorithm to solve it in the early 1980s. Their program worked pretty well, but it still couldn't handle what's called change detection. It could tell you the most frequently searched terms, but not which terms are trending. In Google's case, it could identify Wikipedia as an ever-popular search term, but it couldn't find the spike in searches that accompany a major event like Hurricane Irma. Graham Cormode is a computer scientist at the University of Warwick in the UK.
1: So what's happening here in this heavy hitters thing, you can kind of view as a coding problem, right? We're encoding information down to this, this sort of compact summary. And then we're gonna try and extract information from that to recover what was put in. We want to pick out things that correspond to the strong signal, which is the heavy hitters, and ignore sort of the noise, which is the other elements that happen to be colliding and, and and crashing within this data structure.
0: Cormode and other computer scientists have worked over the past thirty-something years to improve Greece and MISRA's algorithm. Some of the new algorithms are able to detect trending terms, for example, while others are able to work with a more fine-grained definition of what it means for a term to be frequent. All those algorithms make trade-offs, like sacrificing speed for accuracy or memory consumption for reliability. Most of these efforts rely on an index. Imagine you're trying to identify frequent search terms. One way to do that would be to assign a number to every word in the English language, and then pair that number with a second number that keeps track of how many times that word has been searched. Maybe aardvark gets indexed as word number 17 and appears in your database as 17,9, meaning word number 17 has been searched nine times. This approach comes closer to putting the most frequent items at your fingertips. At any given moment, you know exactly how many times each word has been searched. Still, Jelani Nelson says this system has one major drawback.
1: You know, it works, it's great. However, notice that it's super slow because you have to loop over every single word in the dictionary and your dictionary might be large, doing some wishful thinking What if the size wasn't large?
0: But what if the number of words in the dictionary wasn't roughly 171,000, but was actually only 100? Then looping over every word in the dictionary will actually not take that long, right?
1: Because there are only 100 of them. But this is wishful thinking, because obviously the number of words in the dictionary is what it is. You can't change that.
0: But the authors of the new algorithm discovered you can break the big dictionary into smaller pieces and find a clever way to put it back together. Imagine that you're monitoring a stream of numbers between 0 and 50 million. Not so easy, right? But it's similar to logging internet users by their IP addresses. You could keep track of the numbers using a 50 million term index, but it's hard to work with an index that size. A better way is to think of each 8-digit number as four 2-digit numbers linked together. Say you see the number 12,345,678. One memory-efficient way to remember it is to break it into four two-digit blocks. 12, 34, 56, 78. Then you can send each block into a sub-algorithm that calculates item frequencies. 12 goes into copy 1 of the algorithm, 34 goes to copy 2, 56 goes to copy 3, and 78 goes to copy 4. Each sub-algorithm maintains its own index of what it's seen, but since each version never sees anything bigger than a two-digit number, each index only runs from 0 to 99. An important feature of this splitting is that if the big number appears frequently in your overall data stream, so will its two-digit components. So back to 12,345,678. When you ask each sub-algorithm to identify the numbers it's seen the most, copy one will spit out 12, Copy 2 will spit out 34, and so on. You'll be able to find the most frequent members of a huge list just by looking for the frequent items in four much shorter lists. Nelson says instead of spending 50 million units of time looping over the entire universe, you only have four algorithms spending 100 units of time. It's a lot faster. The main problem with this divide and conquer strategy is that while it's easy to split a big number into small numbers, the reverse is trickier. It's hard to fish out the right small numbers to recombine to give you the right big number. Let's say your data stream frequently includes two numbers that have some digits in common. 12,345,678, and 12,999,999. Both start with 12. Your algorithm splits each number into four smaller numbers, then sends each to a sub-algorithm. Later, you ask each sub-algorithm, which numbers have you seen the most frequently? Copy 1 is going to say, I've seen a lot of the number 12. An algorithm that's trying to identify which eight-digit numbers it's seen the most often can't tell if all these 12s belong to one eight-digit number or, as in this case, to two different numbers. Nelson says the challenge is figuring out which goes where. The authors of the new work solve this dilemma by packaging each two-digit block with a little tag that doesn't take up much memory, but it still allows the algorithm to put two-digit pieces back together in the right way. To see one simple approach to how the tagging might work, start with our favorite number, good old 12,345,678. Split it into two-digit blocks, but this time, before you send each block to its respective subalgorithm, package the block with a pair of unique identifying numbers that can be used to put the blocks back together. The first of these tags serves as the block's name, the second as a link. 12,345,678 becomes 12,0,1, and 34,1,2, and 56, 2, 3, and 78, 3, 4. So 12, as in 12 million, has the name zero and gets linked to the number named one. The next number set, 34, has the name one and gets linked to the number named two. You get the idea. Now, when the sub-algorithms return the two-digit blocks they've seen most frequently, 12 goes looking for a number tagged with 1 and finds 34. Then 34 goes looking for a number tagged 2 and finds 56, and so on, until they're all linked together again. The links are held together by the extra tagging numbers. But computer scientist Jelani Nelson says there's one problem. You are your weakest link, right? If you have one guy in your chain,
1: one link in your chain that messes up, your whole chain is destroyed.
0: Of course, no algorithm works perfectly every time you run it. Even the best ones misfire some small percentage of the time. In the example we've been using, a misfire could mean that the second two-digit block, 34, gets assigned an incorrect tag. As a result, when it goes looking for the block it's supposed to be joined to, it doesn't have the information it needs to find 56. And once the link in the chain fails, the entire thing collapses. To avoid this problem, researchers use what's called an expander graph. In an expander graph, each two-digit block forms a point. Like the tagging process before, points get connected by lines to form a cluster. The important feature of an expander graph is that instead of merely connecting each point with its adjoining blocks, you connect each two-digit block with multiple other blocks. With 12,345,678, you connect 12 with 34, but also with 56, so that you can still tell that 12 and 56 belong in the same number, even if the link between 12 and 34 fails. An expander graph doesn't always come out perfectly. Sometimes it'll fail to link two blocks that should be linked, or it'll link two blocks that don't belong together. To counteract this tendency, the researchers developed the final step of their algorithm, a cluster-preserving sub-algorithm. It can survey an expander graph and accurately determine which points are meant to be clustered together and which aren't, even when some lines are missing or false ones have been added. Mikkel Thorup of the University of Copenhagen, who co-authored the algorithm, says that guarantees you can recover something that looks like the original clusters. We probably won't see Twitter plug in the expander sketch tomorrow, but the techniques underlying it are applicable to a wider range of computer science problems than tallying tweets. The algorithm also proves that certain sacrifices that previously seemed necessary to answer the frequent items problem don't need to be made. Previous algorithms always gave up something. They were accurate, but memory intensive or fast, but unable to determine which frequent items were trending. This new work shows that given the right way of encoding a lot of information, you can end up with the best of all possible worlds. You can store your frequent items and recall them too. Or in simpler terms, you don't have to worry about measuring water from a fire hose while it hits you in the face. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Kevin Hartnett's full article, Best Ever Algorithm Found for Huge Streams of Data, on our website, quantummagazine.org.